listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. Today, we're going to talk about another of the five core values that you should have in your life, that you should have in your family, that we should have as a church family that will absolutely revolutionize everything. And to find this value, which is spoken of repeatedly throughout the whole Bible, we're going to turn today to the book of Revelation chapter 3. The book of Revelation chapter 3. See, all of these values that we're covering, the mission of God, the vision of God, There's not just one verse of Scripture that covers these things. There are multiple verses of Scripture that cover these things, and we would need multiple lifetimes to go through all of the Scriptures as adequately and properly as they should be gone through to cover the vision, the mission, and the values. But I just want to whet our appetites a little bit. Maybe if you're listening by podcast, whet your appetite, enable you to think a little bit, enable you to, and each of us to respond to what we're hearing from the Word of God, and then you'll begin to look at the Word of God differently, and you'll see these things all through the Scriptures. You'll see these values peppered all through the Word of God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. An amazing passage of Scripture where Jesus is addressing the different churches that lived in that particular time, and other people also believe that these are examples of churches that exist all the time and any time. And here in this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus is addressing the Laodicean church, a church that was neither hot for Jesus or cold for Jesus, but just was kind of, eh, eh, kind of on autopilot, having received the grace of God understood the gospel, responded to the gospel, and then, eh, just kind of going along. And Jesus had to rebuke the Laodicean church. And he gives some of the strongest language to the Laodicean church possible, where he says, because you're neither hot nor cold, but you're, eh, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And it seems like such strong, harsh significant language from Jesus to his church that he died to create. But Jesus has the right to do that. The Lord has the right to do that, and here we see the reasoning why in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And then we get into this interesting passage of Scripture where Jesus is speaking to the church, a group of people born again, Jew and Gentile, fellowshipping together. That's what the church is. 
That's what the church is. There are local churches, and then there is the church, what we would call universal, the church throughout the world. Anybody who's born again, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, your God, and your Master. You understand that there's no other way to heaven apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and personal, individual faith in that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, you become a member of the body of Christ, the church. And you might fellowship in a local congregation, but all those local congregations really are just outposts of the same kingdom, serving and loving and knowing the same king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. But here, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what is it that Jesus is saying to the churches? The churches, or this particular church, had done something that no church should do. This particular church had done something that should frighten in a godly way every single church. I don't think I'm doing it justice when I say that. Every single church leader. Every single church leader should be fearful of the Lord that they do not do this very thing that the Laodicean church did. Every single Christian within every single church, I don't care if you're in a position of leadership or not, if you're a Christ follower, leadership is influence and therefore you are a leader. Every single Christ follower should be afraid with a godly fear that the church you're a part of does not do what this church had done in the church of Laodicea. And it has everything to do with this particular value that we're addressing today. The church of Laodicea did something that every church leader should be vigilant about, carefully watching for and preventing. The church of Laodicea had locked Jesus out of his own church. One of the things that you should be valuing in your own life and in your own family and that we should be valuing in our church, it's not our church at all, really. It's Jesus' church. One of the things that we should be valuing is the unhindered, unbridled movement of God, the movement of the Spirit of God. This is the number one thing that we need in our nation It's the number one thing we need in our churches. It's the number one thing we need in our families. It's the number one thing we need in our lives individually. We cannot solve a spiritual problem with a secular solution. A spiritual problem cannot be rectified through mere natural, mortal, finite human means. And we can push as hard as we want. We can throw more money at a situation. We don't have enough money to solve a spiritual problem. And I would go so far as to say that our number one problem in the United States of America can be traced back to the problem not in the secular world. Follow me on this. It is not a problem in the secular world. 
It is a problem right here on what is supposed to be holy ground, sacred ground, within the walls, the confines, if there's such a thing, of the church of the living God. We have locked Jesus out of his own church. Behold, watch, pay attention. Open up your ears wide. Open up your eyes. Or the times that are already desperate. And my speaking, which should already be loud and clear, says the Lord, will be even louder and clearer. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. You know, hearing Jesus knocking doesn't do anybody any good unless you go over to the door, you put your hand on the doorknob, and you say, well, come on in, Jesus. You're welcome here. One of the things you must value in your own life, one of the things you must value in your family, and by value, I don't mean just be aware of it. I mean you must prioritize. You must make this happen. It's the same thing that we must value and we must prioritize in every local congregation in the body of Christ, and that is the unhindered, unbridled, unchained movement of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't want Jesus knocking outside of the door of my life and hear his voice and just stop there. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just hear Jesus knocking at the door of my family and just say, yeah, I hear you, Jesus. I hear you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to pastor a church that merely is aware of the voice of Jesus, that we hear him knocking. That's not good enough. That's not far enough. In fact, that doesn't enable us to overcome anything. Notice what is said here in the Scriptures. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. How would you like to crawl up on your daddy's lap and sit on his throne? One of the greatest pleasures that I have is when I'm sitting and I'm reading something, whether it's a magazine or a book, whatever the case might be, watching television, watching a movie, I love to ask my children, my boys, come and sit with daddy. Come and sit with me. The idea is one of fellowship, one of relationship, one of closeness. And what Jesus is saying here is, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. No space between you and your father. No space between you and the son. No space between you and God, between me and God, between us and God. But it's conditional to the one who conquers. And the context here seems to be one in which it's completely wrapped up in opening the door. You see, it's not possible to be a conqueror unless you open the door. 
I'm going to bring this back to something very practical. So you don't think I'm being esoteric, I'm being mystical, I'm being mysterious. What does it mean to open the door? So that instead of just hearing Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, the door of your family, the door of a church, you actually take that pivotal decision and you act upon it. You actually move over to that door, open it up. See, Jesus is a gentleman. He will not force himself on you. Now, you might make it a decision in your life or try to resist God, think you're going to come out a winner. All you're doing is creating misery for yourself. There's not a person on this planet who's resisted God and come out a winner. Until we cross over and make a decision to cooperate with God, it doesn't matter that we hear him knocking. It doesn't matter that we know that he wants into our individual lives or in our families or in the church. The Laodicean church, which existed by the blood of Jesus, Jesus was the church planter. He founded the church of Laodicea. The Laodicean church needed to make a decision. And that decision was whether or not they'd get up and go open the door and let Jesus in. Notice again that Jesus' statement here is to the church. Hear what the Spirit says to the church. The number one problem in our nation is that God's people have become content with simply hearing the voice of God. It's almost as if we think that it's sufficient to be familiar with the Bible. No, it's not. One of the teachings we see in the Scriptures from beginning to end is that it is the application of God's Word. It is putting God's Word into practice that makes all the difference in a life. Listen, it makes all the difference in your family. Whether or not you will put into practice, I will put into practice what we are reading in the Word of God. It makes all the difference in the life of a church. What do I mean by that? Nineteen years ago on this day, I was in the South Pacific in the Solomon Islands. And this is the journal that I used when I was there to record how God was blowing circuits in my own life, how God was moving in mighty power, and the revivals that I had read about in history and God had used to make me hungry for a mighty movement of God in my own life and in this nation and whatever church I'd be a part of, God was actually doing there on April 12, 1996. And I was in this particular village. It's recorded here. I was in this particular village in this pole barn structure with a zinc roof, which you often see in third world countries, with a zinc roof. And I was standing as I was worshiping, maybe about five or six feet from the corner of this pole barn structure. And as we began to worship, this torrential storm came up, a storm like you have never seen. I don't care where you live in, in the United States. This torrential downpour with thunder and lightning, the kind that happens and actually makes you a bit afraid. 
That type of volume, that type of shock and awe going on. Now, when you're in a pole barn structure that seats maybe 400 people, and you have that type of a downpour, it's very difficult to hear people. It's very difficult to have a civilized discussion with somebody next to you. You yell at each other because you just cannot hear each other because of the sound of the rain alone. That was a torrential downpour like I had never seen there. And coincidentally, if there is such a thing as a coincidence in these types of things, the worship service was absolutely flat. The worship leader who was up front using a classical guitar, missing a string, trying to lead this group of 400 people was going nowhere fast. And he tried as diligently as he could this song and that song and trying to shout out a word of encouragement to the people without the use of a microphone because the power, coincidentally, was also out. There was no microphone. There were no lights. We were using kerosene lanterns to try to illuminate this, this area because the generator was completely unfunctional, inoperable. And this worship leader tried for just about an hour, throwing everything he could, praying and peppering prayers in all this time. And I'm sitting in the corner of that pole barn structure, and I'm saying, Lord, what is it that is opposing you? Lord, come against what's opposing you, because... Up to that time, I had learned a thing or two that it is not the will of God for his people not to encounter him in worship. It is not the will of God for any worship service to be flat. Haven't you read that God inhabits the praises of his people? Haven't you read that the enemy continually opposes God's people, the agenda, the objective of God? And I'm standing there and then sitting on this bench five feet away from the end and I'm praying, Lord, move mightily against whatever is opposing you. And as I'm praying, I feel a hand on my shoulder and my arm goes up in reflex and I hit this Australian brother right in the face. Almost knock him down on the ground. Mike, take it easy, mate. It's all right. I want you to pray. Excuse me to all the Australians out there as I botch your accent. We need to pray that God comes against all of this. I said, that's what I'm praying. Good, keep praying. He goes and sits down. Maybe 10, 15 minutes more pass. I'm diligently praying, diligently asking the Lord, reveal what is opposing you. It is not your will for your people to not erupt into praise bring you glory and bring you honor. And I opened my eyes because I heard a commotion to my side with 20, 25 children sitting there talking. And they were talking loudly because it was overwhelming the sound of the rain on the zinc roof. And I looked and they were all pointing, it seemed like, at me. But they weren't pointing at me at all. They were pointing just to the side of me. And as I followed the invisible line from their fingers over to the area next to me, I about fell out of my chair as just beyond reach, about five feet away, a snake had made its way up to the side of the pole barn structure and was looking at me, tongue darting in and out, looking out across the congregation and just brazenly, boldly doing what snakes do. If it was just a snake, 
And I got up and I went right over to that snake and I pointed at it and I began to rebuke the snake in the name of Jesus. And the Australian brother came up and he pointed his finger at that snake and he began to rebuke the snake in the name of Jesus. Actually, not just the snake, but the spiritual forces that the snake represented. So you have an American and an Australian pointing their finger with a little bit of fear and trepidation. It took a Solomon Islander to come up between us, grab that snake by the throat, walk out right there to the outside of the pole barn structure, and I'm telling you, with God as my witness, within 60 seconds, all of the rain stopped. The storm went away. The generator kicked on, and the people erupted in worship. The entire spiritual climate of that pole barn structure of God's people gathering and worshiping him was as if somebody flicked a switch. In fact, God did and changed everything. The sermon came. The sermon went. I don't remember what was preached. In fact, to be honest with you, it wasn't a very phenomenal message. But because it was about a phenomenal God, the people had something to walk away with. The people weren't enamored with the personality. They were enamored with the living and true God, which is what every pastor should be trying to do, point people to the living and true God, who is much greater than any pastor, much greater than any sermon. Even the best sermon you'll ever hear falls far short of giving the living and true God, Jesus Christ, all the glory and the honor he deserves. After the service, we decompressed and we talked. My team and I, we talked and we talked with the Solomon Islanders and we found out this peculiar coincidence, peculiar coincidence, that all during that first hour of the service where the worship leader was riding a canoe through mud, so it seemed, and trying to get that breakthrough, the church leaders were in conflict with one another. They had a schism with each other that they could not resolve. And it was at the very moment when they resolved the schism, I kid you not, just after the snake appeared and was removed from the pole barn structure, that was the very moment when there was repentance and there was a breakthrough in the leadership. And when the leaders humbled themselves, and when the leaders dealt with whatever the issue was that they were dealing with. Coincidentally, this horrendous storm that we were dealing with and this tremendous opposition so thick you could cut it with a knife, you could feel it, the opposition, instantaneously ceased. There's no such thing as a coincidence when it comes to things like that. In the American world, in our rationalistic world, where we want everything explained through mere, mere natural brainwave understanding, we read the same Bible that they read. But we need a heavy dose of understanding the significance of the discipline of God, the significance of human repentance as an ongoing condition, yes, I mean what I say, and I say what I mean because the Bible does. An ongoing condition for the movement 
of the Spirit of God. You know, one of the reasons we don't have the movement of the Spirit of God in our churches is because we're content to go without it. One of the reasons we don't have the movement of the Spirit of God in our families is because we're content to live our lives in our families without the unhindered, unbridled movement of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why we don't experience the presence and the power and the movement of God in our individual lives is because we're content to live and move and have our being without the presence and the power and the movement of God. It is not enough to simply hear Jesus knocking at the door. Somebody, somewhere, sooner than later, has to get up and go over and open the door and say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. We're not talking about something esoteric. We're not talking about something bizarre or mysterious. We're talking about the most practical thing that you as a believer can prioritize, the most practical thing that you and your family can prioritize, whether you're married or whether you're someday going to be married, the most practical thing that a church leader and that church leaders must prioritize, the movement of the Spirit of God. Notice what Jesus says here, Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. There's a direct correlation between repentance and zeal that is focused. You know, zeal without focus is just flailing. The prophets of Baal flailed as they failed, But godly zeal embraces repentance. Godly zeal embraces the disciplinary hand of God. Could it be in our individual lives? Could it be in our families? Could it be in our churches that the very thing that is key to unlocking the door, opening the door, and letting Jesus in is the very thing that we don't really understand. Look with me at Hebrews in chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, speaking of Jesus, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Haven't you noticed that Life outside of Eden can cause us to be faint-hearted. It can wear us down and knock us down and make us tired. Sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is absolutely nothing. Sleep in once in a while. Put that on your honey-do list. Rest a little bit. Just rest in Jesus. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? A reference to Proverbs 3 and Job chapter 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Not sexist language. It's not 
an emphasis on maleness compared to femaleness, speaking within the culture of the day, God, through his word, is helping us understand this idea of favor. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Sounds amazingly familiar with Revelation 3. It is for discipline that you've come to endure. God is treating you as sons, people of favor. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. How? By embracing the Lord's discipline. Do you know that's one of the key ways that you are revived, that you're renewed, that you're strengthened? By embracing whatever discipline God is placing in your life. It is counterintuitive, but it is biblical. Now, I'm going to ask you to respond in a moment. In just a few seconds, if you want the peace of God, if you want the peace of God unleashed in your life, and you want the movement of God in your life, just put your hand up and say, that's me, I want the movement of God, even more than I've experienced it up to this point. And with that, we also want the discipline of God. It's not possible to experience the depth of peace, the depth of freedom that God offers without embracing the Lord himself and everything he wants to bring with himself. And with that, oftentimes, is discipline. Let's go to verse 12 first. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. You know, when we resist the Lord's discipline, we can add insult to injury. That's what he means in the book of Hebrews when he says, so that it might not be put out of joint, but be healed. The more we resist what God is saying to us in our lives individually, in our families and in the church, what the Spirit of God is saying to us, the more we open ourselves up for greater and more significant discipline. And this is what's happening in our nation, where God is speaking more loudly. God is speaking more clearly. We're in the midst of a perfect storm in this nation. And I am waiting and I'm watching for God's people to connect the dots. It's time that we connect the dots. It's time that we understand that Jesus is knocking. Jesus wants us to overcome, practically speaking, in the day-to-day course of our lives. And Jesus wants us to understand in our lives and in our families and in the church 
that it's not enough just to hear his voice. We must let him in. And the primary way that you and I let Jesus in and overcome in whatever situation you are facing individually and in your family and in the church, the way that that happens is by being zealous and repenting, by embracing the Lord's discipline. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And that's why he ends that section here in Hebrews chapter 12 by saying, therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Every single one of God's people who knows God's Word, when we know what God's Word is teaching us, we all want to be healed of whatever it is that we're facing. We all want to make progress in whatever road we are traveling upon, don't we? We all want God to move us forward, and really what that's all about is the movement of the Spirit of God. You want God to move in your individual life. You want God to move in your family. And don't you want God to move at this church? Don't we want God to move in this nation? How can we take another step? How can we fantasize inappropriately, in an unbiblical manner, about the presence and the power and the movement of God without prioritizing submission to the voice of God? What is God saying to you in your individual life? What has God been speaking to you about through his word and by his spirit in your individual life? What is the problem that's so pressing in your family that you feel like it's the same thing different day? You're a hamster on a wheel. What is the issue that God is speaking to you about very clearly? And if you don't know what that issue is, but yet you find yourself going through the same thing different day, it's high time that you ask God, Lord, What is it that you're saying to us in in the church, in every outpost for God, where we hear Jesus knocking? The issue is, does Jesus have an open opportunity to move and to accomplish his good, pleasing, and perfect will? There's a direct correlation between your zeal. There's a direct correlation between my zeal. There's a direct correlation between our zeal and the degree to which we embrace and don't resist. We embrace and don't resist repentance. Turning in our hearts and in our minds from the things that we otherwise are embracing, turning in our lives and with our lips and with our hands and with our feet from the things that we're embracing, being zealous for God as demonstrated by repentance, and that, brothers and sisters, is what turns the doorknob and opens the door and welcomes the unhindered, unbridled movement of the Spirit of God. If there's one thing that you need to value in your life, if there's one thing that I need to value in my life, one thing we need to value in my family and in your family and within the body of Christ, it is found here in the book of Revelation. Being a church is not good enough. Being a church 
is not good enough. Jesus has set the bar high, but not impossible. Jesus has said, that's great that you're a church. The question is, are you a church where I can move? Are you a church where I am welcome? Are you a church that is willing to make changes in the way you do things? Are you a church that is willing to accommodate in your zeal the unhindered, unbridled, unchained, unfettered movement of Jesus Christ because any church that is satisfied with anything and everything other than the movement of the Spirit of God has done a bait and switch without the permission of Jesus. Any one of us who has become enamored with anything that we might be doing in the name of God without the presence and the power and the movement of God is something that God himself has not called us to. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Whatever that is for you individually, whatever, whatever that is for you in your family, whatever that is for us in the church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me, to the one who conquers, to the one who opens the door, to the one who is zealous and repents, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You might say theologically, but doesn't that apply to everybody who's given their life to Jesus Christ? It does, but this is one of those passages in Scripture where there is a tension and I'm not comfortable with dismissing what's clearly taught in the Scriptures. We do see a tension in the Scriptures between grace and works. Undeserved favor of God that we do nothing to acquire and the human responsibility which God requires in order to move without hindrance, to move without encumbrance. The very thing that changes a life, the very thing that changes a family, the very thing that changes a church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And that's when everything begins to change. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.